0: The Army's decision at the time was we will issue this body armor to everyone as quickly as we can. What we say is that, look, there might have actually been a situation where it might have actually made more sense to give them more re-enlistment
1: bonuses. People are making these trade-offs all the time. And what you would like government to do is not to make it safer than we would choose to in our own life or too risky than uh, we would in our own life.
2: We want to keep people safe. But that comes at a cost.
3: On this episode of The Pie, what is the value of a single life in the abstract? What's our willingness to trade
2: money for a higher risk of death? This is The Pie. Economists are always talking about the pie. How it grows and shrinks, how it's sliced, who gets the biggest share. In this show, we'll talk about the most pressing matters of the day. And in
3: this episode, we'll look at how economists estimate the value of a life. And they have a term for that, the value of a statistical life, or VSL. And how does it help
2: to place a monetary value on life anyway? I'm Tess Viglund. And I'm Eduardo Porter. We've been invited to have this series of conversations with University of Chicago scholars and other experts.
3: The Pie is a production of the University of Chicago's Becker Friedman Institute and
2: WBEZ Chicago. I talked with Michael Greenstone distinguished service professor in economics at the University of Chicago, and faculty director of the Becker Friedman Institute and the Energy Policy Institute at Chicago, and with Major Kyle Greenberg from the Office of Economic and Manpower Analysis in the Department of Social Sciences at West Point about the value of statistical life of U.S. Army soldiers. Let me start with a very open question. Economists have been discussing for years how best to put a monetary value on life. And the question is, why? I mean, why is this useful? Michael?
1: So look, societies, governments, people make decisions all the time uh, where they're trading off uh, risk and essentially money to be crude about it. And the example I like to keep in my mind is, uh, you know, there's lots of road accidents in the United States. uh, And- There is surely a super simple solution. I think 40,000 people a year die in traffic accidents. And there's surely a very, very simple solution, which is every car and every person could have their own road. It could be, you know, have all kinds of balloons on the side and you would ensure that nobody ever, ever died in in a car accident again. Now, the reason we don't do that is because it would be unbelievably expensive. And it would be so expensive that, I think in practice people are willing to accept more risk by driving me driving next to Kyle or driving next to you Eduardo on a different lane and it's through those kind of that trade off of money versus risk that you can start to see like there's decisions everywhere how clean should the air be how safe should the roads be in the example of the paper Kyle and I wrote like how much protective equipment should soldiers have there's probably no better explainer of complicated things than Homer Simpson. And there is actually a Simpsons episode uh, where Homer was trying out for the debate team.
0: My name's Homer Simpson, I'd like to sign up for something.
3: Well, we have an opening on the debate team. Debate, like arguing? Yes. I'll take that!
1: When they had a national setting, a national maximum speed limit at 55 miles per hour, in the early 70s.
3: Topic is resolved. The national speed limit should be lowered to 55 miles per hour.
1: 55, that's ridiculous.
0: Sure, they'll save a few lives, but millions will be late.
1: People are making these trade-offs all the time. And what you would like government to do is not to make it safer than we would choose to in our own life or too risky than uh, we would in our own life. And so government is trying to find how to calibrate between those two things.
2: So let's let's delve into the specific paper that you guys have done, which is really interesting in that you've kind of like tried to assess the, this value of a statistical life in the context of the military. You're thinking about soldiers for whom the odds of dying are probably pretty front of mind. Kyle, just to start, could you just... Just walk us through your analysis, what you guys did, and the top-line finding that you found more interesting.
0: I I want to start off by saying I'm I'm an officer in the U.S. Army, but I should start with a standard disclaimer that uh, research and and what we discussed today does not reflect the official position of the Department of Defense or the U.S. Army. So what we're doing is we're looking at first-term U.S. Army soldiers— who were facing their re-enlistment decisions between 2002 and 2010. So we're mainly talking about soldiers who were deciding whether or not they wanted to re-enlist for another three or four year term in the U.S. Army during the period of conflict with Iraq and Afghanistan. And to infer the VSL or to estimate it, we're we're looking at how re-enlistment rates respond to changes in re-enlistment bonuses as well as to changes in levels of mortality risk. And so, what's really neat about our setting is that we can observe soldiers in all different military occupations, and we can observe how their reenlistment bonuses change over time because within the US Army, reenlistment bonuses are changing all the time in order to meet uh, short term changes in aggregate military demand. There's also a lot of changes going on in mortality risk. So in some months, operations in Iraq and Afghanistan can be very lethal. And as a result, you have higher mortality risk. And in other months, um, those operations have sort of cooled down and there's a lot lower mortality risk. And so by having this variation, we can estimate how soldiers are and respond to changes in both those bonuses and mortality risk. And when we do this, we have some interesting findings.
1: If I I could just weigh in here, I I think the first and probably— the core finding of our paper is twofold. One, a uh, $1,000 increase in a re- reenlistment bonus for a four year term raises the probability that a soldier will reenlist by about half a percentage point. So that's like the first result. So, like, more money and people are more likely to sign up. I, I, I don't, you know, people have different priors. I actually thought that was a pretty big response for $1,000 for four years. And then the second part of this is how do they respond to changes in the mortality risk? And basically what we found is just like everyone else, a soldier is responsive to risk. And when the mortality rate went up during Iraq and Afghanistan, it deterred people from going. And so it's those two responses, the responses to money and the responses to the risk that together allow us to make this calculation of the value of statistical life.
0: So in the U.S., I think most labor market estimates estimate the VSL to be somewhere around $10 million. Within our sample, we find that the VSL is probably around 500000 to $900,000, depending on the specification.
1: And as Kyle said, you know, a half a million dollars is kind of lower than is believed to be in the general population. And in some sense, it's not surprising because the people who sign up for the military are, you know, in some sense, braver than the rest of us. That is, they're more comfortable with risk. What's so striking uh, is that even within the military, the army, you can see these differences. And you know, the the people who volunteer for the combat occupations are different from the people who uh, volunteer for the non-combat occupations. And that chief difference is like comfort with risk. From a nerdy research perspective, it's like so exciting to have the data kind of reveal this idea that people have been talking about for five decades, which is, well, how does the same type of person respond to differences in risk? So not just comparing combat and non-combat guys, but as Kyle was talking about, there's periods when people are facing relatively low rates of mortality risk, say, you know, before the Afghanistan and Iraq wars got going or after they are winding down. And then there's periods where people who had signed up many years previously and are basically look very similar are facing much higher risk, and you can see they're just like we would have predicted. They're just like everyone else. When the risk get higher, they're gonna need more compensation.
0: Yeah.
1: And so, uh, for example, if you take a kind of medium mortality rate for combat guys during this period, uh, you can see the, their implied value of Cisco life go up by almost an order of magnitude compared to the period when risks were really, really high.
2: Wow. Now, listen, I I could see people, non-experts, civilians, as it were, have a lot of doubts about this kind of method. Because, I mean, for starters, how confident can you be in people's understanding of their mortality risk in order to give it a value?
0: Yeah, so I think the Army is a setting where soldiers have a really good understanding of how mortality rates change over time and how they differ across occupations. And this is probably not the case for— You know, most 22 year old men and women who are deciding like how fast to drive on the freeway, for example, you know, to to give you some idea of why we think this, it might help to explain that I I deployed to Iraq in in the summer of 2007. And my job prior to the deployment in the year leading up to it was to give weekly briefings to my unit on the types of situations we were expected to face during our deployment. And all of those briefings included statistics on casualty rates. For obvious reasons, soldiers are very interested in knowing what their mission might look like if they end up deploying, and the dangers that might come with a deployment. And, and so, you know, because of that, because there's just sort of this natural interest to find out what you might do if you're in a place like Iraq or Afghanistan, we think our setting is one where the individuals in the sample have a lot better understanding of their mortality risk than you might see in a normal everyday situation. After the break, we'll illustrate
2: this idea of how to value risk. Is protective body armor worth more than a re-enlistment bonus? There's an example in your paper that I think is is worth uh, talking about here, this idea of the value of body armor for different types of soldiers. And and that could lead you to allocate more money to body armor or more money to bonuses. I I wonder, Kyle, could you uh, talk us through that bit?
0: Yeah, so the example we like to give in our paper is the US Army paid for enhanced body armor protective equipment that would um, protect you against um, enemy combatant type fire. So, um, you know, if it's a if it's really strong protective equipment, it it, it should guard against not only like shrapnel from a roadside bomb, but as well as if somebody that was firing like an AK-47 at you and a bullet hit you, depending on how good the body armor is, it might be able to stop some of those bullets. Mm -hmm. And in around 2005, the Department of Defense was testing enhanced body armor and decided to go to an improved body armor uh, kit that was actually cost um, more than the the standard body armor kit. The Army's decision at the time was, we will issue this body armor to everyone as quickly as we can. What we say is that, look, there might've actually been a situation where, based on these different estimates of the value of a statistical life, or the fact that soldiers in in non-combat occupations tend to be willing to, they're, they're less willing to accept risk than soldiers in combat occupations. Because of that scenario, you actually had a situation where if your goal was to try to maximize the total number of reenlistments, at first it might have made more sense to issue enhanced body armor to truck drivers who faced a, a modestly high mortality risk relative to what they would normally face in a place like Iraq or Afghanistan. And instead of issuing enhanced body armor to infantry soldiers there, because at the time their their mortality risk is relatively low, it might have actually made more sense to give them more
1: reenlistment bonuses. And, and can can I just try and jump in there? So I think like if you think about the army's problem, they you know they need a certain number of people to fulfill their mission, and to get that they have to have the the full sum of the job, which includes the the bonus and the mortality risk that's got to add up for soldiers so that they're willing to reenlist. And what this example illustrates is that in terms of the soldiers, some of them would have just preferred to have bigger bonuses and some of them would have preferred to have the enhanced body armor. And what our paper is able to do is like identify the ones who would have liked the money and identify the ones who would have liked uh, the enhanced body armor. Now, of course it would be best to have both, but, Given resource constraints and th- and allocations of the Department of Defense, et cetera, et cetera, sometimes those trade offs have to be made, and this is. Kind of where our analysis I think can be especially useful.
2: I mean, where does this lead us? Okay, the guys who are likely to face less of a risk to being shot, the clerks and the and the truck drivers who, you know, are in, in less risky occupations, we give those guys the new Kevlar stuff. And the guys that are more likely to be in a situation where they're gonna get shot, we give those guys more money. And and sure, I mean I understand how you get to that conclusion but it still feels sort of weird.
0: Let me try to unpack part of that. Instead of asking, should we pay them less? Let's go back to the broader question of, if we need to fight a war, who do we want to be enlisting in the military? Right now we have an all-volunteer army. And so I think it makes natural sense that the people who are enlisting to serve in the army are, are probably the ones who are willing to accept the most amount of risk. And if we want to get more people who would normally not enlist to join the Army, we're going to have to pay them even more than what we currently pay soldiers at the moment. So, again, it goes back to that resource-constrained environment.
1: Um, or, or, or we could have a requirement that everyone be in the Army.
0: Hey, we did have that. We could. But, but right now we have an all-volunteer military. And so, you know, this idea of because we have an all-volunteer military, getting enough reenlistments is absolutely critical for, for manning the more senior ranks of the force. And unless we decide that we want to, as a society, we want to go back to conscription, you know, we're going to have to accept the fact that the people who are enlisting to join the military are probably going to accept more risk than than the people who are not.
1: The disadvantage of conscription is that you would get people who are very, very uncomfortable with risk and who find it very, very taxing to be in the army. And, you know, so you could proceed that way. But in terms of, People's overall well-being. You'd have a bunch of people who are made way worse off, and there might be larger societal goals that make that uh, a good decision. But I think there's no escaping the message from our paper, which is that the people who are in the army now are really special people. They're just braver than most of the rest of us, and you know that allows us to run a you know much more efficient army. Sure.
2: So 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 yeah. I mean, there's two different. Uh, variables to consider, like the VSL changes, my my the, the value, the, the money I need to risk my life changes as the risk of the outside environment changes. And it also changes between people, right? That, so there's the the appetite or the willingness or the tolerance for risk. And there's also the risk on the ground. And as these two things change, well, then you're going to find the right mix of, I guess, money and safety. To pay for each situation and each person. And and I think that's also part of like one of the important findings of your paper, right? You actually found it to be very, very dynamic and changing depending on the situation and changing across the population. And so I was wondering how that might improve, you know, both in the context of the military, but also outside the military in in this broader use of the value of life for policymaking. How might this kind of improve? decisions surrounding these values.
1: So one area that this has made me think a lot more carefully about is actually in the environmental justice movement. And the environmental justice movement is very focused on improving environmental quality in low-income areas. And your first thought about that is, well, those guys are probably, you know, a little bit poorer on average, it's low income, and maybe they wouldn't value changes in risk very much. But what comes out of our paper is if they're facing already higher than average risk, that could turn it on its head. And uh, so just as we see the soldiers facing very high risk, exhibiting very high values of statistical life, it could well be that people in low-income communities that face very high levels of pollution would have very high VSLs. And the reason that's important is it would Suggests we should be devoting resources to cleaning up those areas, and you know the devil is going to be in the details of working that out, but this finding from our paper has kind of caused me to be able to think about cost benefit analysis and environmental justice in really a new way. Yeah, and I, I want to add on to that.
0: So you know most of the, the, the literature when we start talking about the value of statistical life, most of the findings from developing countries are substantially lower, as Michael pointed out than estimates of the value of statistical life from developed countries. But what our paper sort of shows is that's not really a fair comparison, especially if you think that individuals in developing countries are facing much higher mortality risks. And when you account for those much higher mortality risks, it could be that their VSLs are actually quite comparable.
1: It's not just across countries. It could be even true within the United States between uh, rich communities where people probably hate risk but face very little risk and poor communities where they also hate risk, but don't quite have as much money, but face very high levels of risk.
2: Yeah. Right. Cause there's a budget constraint there, right? The poor might not be willing to invest more in protecting their health and and reducing their risk, because they just don't have more money. They don't have enough money to make these investments, or as the rich do. And it would be kind of weird to make conclusions about in which community do I improve the environment based only on that calculation.
1: Yep. The message from our paper is the background risk they're facing is a really important determinant that we have not paid enough attention to.
2: Yeah. I have a last question here that uh, about how the military thinks about this you know kind of philosophical proposition, because at the end of the day, you do end up with a position where somebody's worth more or the life of somebody's worth more than the life of somebody else. right? And well, in your particular setting, with VSLs for soldiers are way, way lower than those that we have for the civilian population. So I wonder, does this cause any sort of discomfort within the military? And how, how does the Pentagon manage this?
0: So I, I think it, it, in general, any time you have a conversation where you're starting to suggest that one person is worth more than another person, it's of course going to make anyone feel uncomfortable. And, you know, I I, I go back to, does that mean we should like not do any research on this? No, of course not. Like it means that we, we, we should continue to try to understand this, to, to try to improve policy. And, you know, at the... At the start of the conversation, you asked us to, to sort of summarize the, the main findings of the research. And, and as Michael pointed out, we find that a $1,000 increase in uh, re-enlistment bonus increases the probability of re-enlistment by half a percentage point, which seems very large in comparison to a relatively comparable increase in the mortality rate of about one per 1,000 soldiers, which only decreases re-enlistments by a quarter of a percentage point. And if you think about on the one hand, it's it leads to this uncomfortable sort of inference that maybe soldiers have low VSLs. But on the other hand, this is actually a very good news story for the United States Army because it it suggests that soldiers are very responsive to re-enlistment bonuses. This is critical because we have an all-volunteer force and and now we know that re-enlistment bonuses can go a long way to sustaining that all-volunteer force. And then I also go back to um, where where understanding the VSL is most important is in that sort of resource-constrained environment. Um, if we have no limit on, on the amount of money we can spend on soldiers or their protective equipment, then that's great. We're going to want to protect everybody, and we're going to want to give all soldiers uh, uh, additional compensation. But when we're ever in a setting where we're constrained by resources and we have to decide how we're going to spend that last – Uh, billion dollars or how we're going to allocate that between bonuses and uh, protective equipment or other types of similar trade-offs, that's where understanding this this research can be very important.
2: You need a tool, right, to allocate the resources.
0: We always want a world that's that's safer, but like any government, we're always constrained by resources.
1: I, I think the painful part of policymaking here is as much as government would like to make everyone completely safe from all risks, people would actually prefer the government not do that because it would just cost too much money. You have to build a road for every single person so they could never crash into another car. And that just costs too much money. And the reason people think it costs too much money is because it doesn't leave them enough resources for other things they like, maybe to go on a vacation or to get the deluxe cable package or whatever it is. And so what we're asking, people are asking government to do is to not make them too safe and not make them too exposed to risk, and that middle ground can best be determined by looking at what how people make choices uh, in, in their own lives and how they trade off their own safety versus money. And you know, I think what is exciting about mine and Kyle's paper, along with our import, uh, great co-authors, is this is a, it's a really interesting setting where people are trading off literally money to re-enlist in the army in exchange for greater fatality risk.
2: Yeah. So listen guys, I, 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 thank you so much. The Pie is a production of WBEZ Chicago and the Becker Friedman Institute for Economics at the University of Chicago.
3: This episode was produced by Dana Bialik. We are produced and mixed by Story Mechanics. Our theme and all original music in the series is by Story Mechanics. Our executive producer is Ellen Horn.
2: I'm Eduardo Porto.
3: And I'm Tess Vigland. This is our final episode for this season of The Pie. Eduardo, it's been great doing this with you, and I think it's been absolutely fascinating hearing from
2: the economists that we've both spoken to, other experts. The Pie has been a series from the University of Chicago's Becker-Friedman Institute for Economics, and we'd like to thank our distribution partner for this season, WBEZ.
3: And uh, we'll tell the folks out there that if you'd like to keep in touch with the latest economic research from the University of Chicago, you can visit, here we go with the URL, bfi.uchicago.edu slash subscribe. And you can sign up for the newsletter there. So thanks for listening, everyone. And uh, Eduardo,
2: we'll talk soon. Hey, Tess, it was great. Talk soon.